Would you take your Bible and turn with me to Titus chapter 2 this morning? Titus chapter 2. Kids ages 3, 4, and kindergartners, you can head to the back, and Miss Rebecca will take you to your classroom this morning. Titus chapter 2, we're continuing our time in the short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege Titus. And this morning we're going to look at verses, well, all of chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 in chapter 2. But the goal here is to see what's, uh, how this, this portion, this chapter in this letter is situated within the larger context of the letter. And so what I want to encourage you to do is after our time together uh, this morning, go home and read the entirety of the, the letter. It's very, it won't take you very long because there's just one chapter at the front of chapter 2 and chapter 1 and one chapter afterwards in chapter 3. And so it, it should take you maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes at the very most to, to read through this so that you can see the whole argument that Paul is laying before Titus. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, I still see one in the back back there. You feel free to pick it up. Austin just took it, so never mind. Um, and, but there are more Bibles under the giving box on the table back there. Feel free to pick one of those up. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, take one of those home with you. One of those that's on the back under the giving box. That's our gift to you. We want you to, to be continually investing time into the Word of God uh, because these are the very words of God spoken to us as if Jesus Christ were here with us this morning speaking to us. So take that. That's our gift to you. And then also, if you find yourself in a position where you're sharing the gospel with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, and you want to gift them a Bible, take one of those. Just go ahead and grab one. Don't order it on Amazon. It'll take too long. Just get one and uh, grab one there and give them to, that to them this week so that you can continue to give them uh, a truth as is contained within God's Word. Okay. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 and read through the end of the chapter. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to, live, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. 
Let no one disregard you. In our, in our world, it's uncommon to find, and I'd say it's almost impossible to find someone who hasn't been deeply impacted by cancer. Many of you, uh, many of our loved ones have fought through cancer, and many of you in, the, in, our, in this room have fought through cancer, and many of us have lost loved ones to cancer. And when, when there are those in our lives who are going through uh, and receive the diagnosis of cancer, we encourage them to fight because they're quite literally in a fight for their lives and where their own bodies and immune systems come up short, being able to fight off cancer, they enlist outside treatments to reduce cancer and its effects on their body. Additionally, it is pretty well established that some cancers are in fact preventable and there are steps that individuals can take in their personal health that can keep cancer at bay. In fact, the American Cancer Association outlined some preventative measures. Don't smoke, protect your skin from the sun, limit your alcohol consumption, maintain a healthy weight, do regular physical activity, eat healthy food with fruits and vegetables, be aware of changes in your body, know your family's medical history, have regular checkups and cancer screenings, at the suggestive time. And now these things, these preventative measures are not foolproof. And the American Cancer Society says that, or the American Cancer Association says that. These are not foolproof means. Some cancer, simply not predictable, simply uh, very hard to prevent, if at all possible to prevent. There are many things in our environment that may cause cancer that we're simply unaware of. We simply don't know about. And considering the American Cancer Association's list of potential ways to prevent cancer, some of them are relatively costly. Some of the things that I just read were relatively costly. Would I rather eat Oreos than broccoli? Yes. Um, would, should I take time to put on sunscreen in the summer? Yes. But uh, those things seem like simple things, but they actually cost something for me because when my life is busy, uh, so uh, I, I have to eat, and so it's always easier to grab some, well, it's not easier, but I want to rather grab some Oreos instead of some broccoli out of the fridge, and, and I slather my kids up with sunscreen, but then maybe fail to apply it to myself as I run and chase after them. These things are costly. Taking preventative measures are costly. Paul knew, and this is the thrust of this letter, underlies even the passage that I read just now, Paul knew that preventing the cancerous cultural conformity and false teaching that may come into the church or slip into the church would be costly for a community of faith. It would require deep investments of time and energy into other people in the way that's described here in chapter 2. This, these sorts of things don't just, don't just, aren't just prevented by doing nothing. In fact, they are prevented by cultural conformity and false teaching, are prevented by proactive investment in the lives of others within the local church. Paul knew that the health of several small churches on this island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea were at stake. These churches were young, only a few years old, likely younger than Buffalo City Church, who just, we just celebrated seven years last week. They are likely younger than, than our church. And in, within that body, there were probably no 
Christians who had been Christians for much longer than two or three years. And so maturity needed to spring up quickly among these men and women. They were young. Each of these churches only a short, uh, only had short lifespans so far. And so Paul has sent Titus there to instruct these churches in their early age. He, he needed to put things into order. If we go back into chapter 1 and we look at verse 5, Paul instructs Titus to put what remains into order and to appoint elders. He tells Titus then at the beginning of our text this morning to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He tells us this. This is the hinge of this letter. Before verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul tells Titus that the culture in Crete where these little churches uh, exist is one that is immoral. It's not upstanding. There's a lot of Cretans that are liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. He says, Paul says, uh, quoting one of uh, a Cretan poet. And so when we come here, when we look at verse 2, he realizes now the conformity, the cultural conformity that these churches will be tempted to engage in needs to be fought. It's going to be costly, but it needs to be fought at all costs. And Paul warns of the false teaching that could sneak through the front door if the churches don't stay alert to the reality that they might become conformed to the culture around them. And so we looked at verse 2 or chapter 2, verse 1, last week. And then in particular, we spent a substantial amount of time looking at verses 11 through 14. Because in verses 11 through 14, we find the sound doctrine that Paul needs to teach, or that, uh, that Titus, Paul tells Titus to teach, uh, and to teach what accords with, or what is consistent with, or what is agreeable with this sound doctrine. If there is no foundation of verses 11 through 14, then there is no living according to sound doctrine. The men and women who are, make up the churches of Crete and the men and women who make up the church, Buffalo City Church, we can put on these things as sort of a guide or as a costume or as a mask. But we cannot truly be transformed unless the foundation of the house is found in verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous, for good works. This needs to be internalized by every believer in this room. It needed to be internalized by every believer and every and the every church on the island of Crete. It needed to be it needs to be internalized by every believer in every church across the globe at all times. The reality that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. The reality that Jesus Christ is the only one who offers us forgiveness of sin. The reality that the only way to have eternal life is to be joined to Christ by faith must be the foundation of every church. It must be the foundation. It must sit at the very base of everything that we say and everything that we do. And so, as we consider what comes between verse 1 of chapter 2 and what comes or, and what between chapter 1 or 2 verse 1 and chapter 2 verse 11, we have to consider that 
What's there has to be our foundation. Chapter 2, verse 2, we see that older men are addressed. And in chapter 2, verse 3, then we see, and what we're going to look at this morning, verses 3 through 5, we're going to hone in right there, is that older women are addressed. The heart, of li- or the heart of living according to sound doctrine, which Paul wants Titus to communicate to these churches and what we need to hear, is that older, more mature believers in the church are to be instructing and modeling godly living for younger believers. I'm going to say that again. Older, more mature believers in the church are to be instructing and modeling godly living for younger believers. This is true of older men, and it is in fact true of older women. This, this represents the preventative action that we as a church need to take so that the church may be healthy today, right now, right now, and in the future. Instructing godly living for the younger generation is the church's sunscreen. Modeling godly living for the younger generation is the church's eating a proper diet of fruits and veggies. Last week, we considered how older men, again, are to instruct and model godly living. We saw that just in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And this week, now, we're going to see how Paul turns and instructs Titus to instruct older women. So, what we see in verses 3 through 5 is a little section here addressed to a particular demographic in the church, older women. Three points from these three verses will then guide our time this morning. We're going to see three things. First, the conduct of life. Second, the content of teaching. And third, the commendation of the word. We'll break those off individually. We'll just walk through these these verses together. So first, we see the conduct of life. Again, addressed to older women, right at the beginning of verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Paul begins by telling uh, Titus how to instruct Older women to be godly examples, to model godly living. Now, a quick aside, because uh, the first word, you might not get past that first word. It says older. We don't like the word older. If you're hung up on that word, I'm going to give you some encouragement to not be hung up on that word. Paul here doesn't give an age range. He doesn't say women older than 60 or women older than 45. You say, I'm not old. And the verses, are these verses really talking about me? What I want to say to you, women, is that age here is not meant to stand in exclusively for the number of birthdays or trips around the sun you've taken, but is meant to, uh, to, to instruct us about a sense of maturity. What does it mean to be mature in the Christian life? And I want to say, even, even with that in mind, sisters, you should, be conti- you should not be concerned about age anyway. 
There's no need to appear younger physically or in any way than you actually are. The Bible is clear about this. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Proverbs 20.29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Now, we have that is addressed to men, but, but this is true of everyone. The physical markers of age, the physical marker of age, are your crown of glory and your splendor. That's what the Bible says. Sometimes women worry about wrinkles in their photos. Sometimes they labor over trying to reduce bags under eyes. But don't be conformed to the world. This is a nonsensical obsession with you. It's silly, and the Bible is not about it. I don't know if it's a fact that your children uh, give you gray hair, but if, but if it is, embrace it. <laughs> a, a life of joy and laughter will, a life of joy and laughter will result in laugh lines. Spend the physical resources that you have and the means that you have. And that that means that you're going to look older. This is beauty, according to the Bible. This is not just a fact of life, but it is actual beauty, according to Scripture. In the ancient world, pale skin was associated with beauty. It indicated an upper class of people who, did, who had others do work for them, servants who doted on every need. They did not have to be exposed to the sun because they got to sit indoors. The lower class uh, but had to be exposed to the sun, toiling away for their, for their master, working the ground and the sun and the work would take its toll on them physically. But God doesn't declare that pale skin and a life of ease results in beauty. In fact, the Bible is pretty clearly that it's the opposite. The Song of Solomon documents the interactions of a man and a woman in love. And the woman begins by saying, I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. And the man responds, calling her the most beautiful of women. The things valued by God are not the things valued by culture. A woman with pale skin, unequated with work under a hot sun, unequated with the challenges of putting food on the table, cooking a dinner while there's a baby on her hip. Unacquainted with the idea of, of hard work and labor in order to make their home a hospitable, warm, and welcoming place. This is not the picture of beauty. The picture of beauty is work and joy and godliness. In 1 Peter 3, verse 4, women, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God in God's sight is very precious. Nothing about age there. And so we see here, I'm going to use this then, the first way for a woman to set a godly example is to stop fighting against getting older. If you've worked well and wisely in your youth and you look tired, good. If you've given yourself to godly living and child rearing and sacrificial service to others and you look in the mirror and you're concerned that you don't see the woman that you saw 20 years ago, don't be. 
Though physical signs of aging are present, God is crowning you with glory and splendor. Women complement one another on godly character, which is true beauty and not on youthful appearance. Women, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Set godly examples by receiving the glory and splendor that God is giving you. All of this, all of what I've just said, indicates that women have lived well and wisely according to God's word, living according to what Paul says here, sound doctrine. And if you looked older because you, or you look older because you've lived like a fool, gray hair won't be a crown of glory for you. You will despise your gray hair. There is gray hair that comes from a righteous life, like the Proverbs say, but there is gray hair that comes from a foolish life. But the good news is even though that you've lived like a fool, if that's you, to this point, you can repent. And by the grace of God, you can turn and live according to God's word. Live wisely and live a godly life of wisdom and not worldly wisdom. A righteous life is still within reach for those who trust Christ and who are joined to him by faith. His word will have its effect no matter your age and no matter your path. So, look here. We, we got to the first word now. Paul says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. So, before we move on into these things that Paul talks about specifically, what I want to do is just sort of give you the structure of these three verses. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to li- love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So I want you to see the structure here of what's contained. All, all women must learn to live reverently. To be reverent in behavior. Old women must be reverent and they must instruct the younger women through their modeling of this to be reverent. But as we're looking at that, we ask ourselves, reverence is a deep respect for something. But we ask ourselves, a deep respect for what? A deep respect or a reverence for what? What should women be reverent of? What should they be respectful of? And here's how this section works itself out. Look down at your Bible with me. Older women likewise are to be reverent. Reverent for behavior for older women includes all that follows in verse 3. So, reverent isn't part of this list. It's the heading for not slanderers or slaves to much wine and to teach what is good. So, in order to live a life of reverence, one must be not a slanderer or a slave to much wine and to teach what is good. And then in verses 4 and the beginning of verse 5, tell us what the good the woman is supposed to teach to the next generation. Love for husband and children, self-control, purity, home-oriented work, kindness, and submission to husband. And it is, and it all is so, look at the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. So if we pair the first part of verse 3 with the last part of verse 5, 
we have what it is that the woman's life should be respectful of. It's the word of God. Older women likewise, I'm just going to read it like this. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior uh, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior that the word of God may not be reviled. Everything else that we find in between these two statements is explanatory. What does it mean to be reverent in behavior so that the word of God may not be reviled? Therefore, older women are to model and teach godly lives that show deep respect for God's word. There's modeling and then there's teaching. There's being an example and there's instruction. The first thing, we get two things. First thing that, uh, that the older women are meant to uh, be an example of, are meant to exemplify in their lives. First, not slanderers. This could be, this is interesting, this could actually be easily translated as false deceiver or accuser. Uh, the word in the original language, it's an adjective, so it's meant to describe but it's the same root word as the word for devil. Because Satan is a slanderer, he is a deceiver, and he is an accuser, to slander another is to disregard God's word and his truth and live in opposition to it. God cannot lie. Jesus Christ is the truth. Christians are people of the truth. The ninth commandment tells us that we should not bear false witness against our neighbor. And so, the first thing that appears here is not slanderers, not accusers, not deceivers. Why would this make the list? Why would older women be tempted, and all of us in general, be tempted to slander another person? To make ourselves feel better about our own shortcomings and sins. To make another person who rubs us the wrong way appear to be in the wrong, or to make them out to be a malicious person. To paint a picture, a false picture, to falsely accuse them of something, or to oversimplify a situation in order to make it look like you're in the right and they're in the wrong. Would you be tempted to slander another person because you wish you had a quality that they had and you want to bring them down into your orbit? Or maybe just for personal gain, to get a promotion at work or to get the attention of a teacher or to boost your grade in a class? There are certainly other reasons. But Paul wants Titus to instruct older women not to be slanderers. Christians are, again, to be people of the truth. Speaking the truth, not speaking where we do not have all of the facts. Holding our tongue, biting our tongue, when we do not know people's intention. Where we do not know how and why a certain scenario played out under our nose. Paul knew that women were designed by God as relational creatures. And in the garden, God made Adam first, and then he gave Eve to Adam. And God made Eve to assist Adam. A helper fit for him is what the text says. In Adam's God-given task. Eve's design then is relational. It's primarily relational. It is oriented toward her husband and the household and his task. Because women are relational, the temptation will be to sin first relationally. 
I made this, I made it kind of a joke last week, but the, the reality is when I get together with a guy and we talk, we don't talk about relational things. We talk about work and we talk about those, the things that we know and the things that we, but when women get together and talk, they typically talk about relationship first. My wife asked me, what did you talk about? How's their marriage? How's, how's he doing? What's, a, what, what's he concerned about? I'm like, I don't know. I just know that he had this problem at work and he's trying to fix it. That shows the difference. That puts on display the difference in our design. Women are relational and so are tempted to sin first relationally. It's not that men aren't tempted to gossip or slander. That has nothing to do. That's not what the text says at all. Paul just knows that this is uh, because of design, the first place that this might happen, by gossiping, slandering, and falsely accusing. Again, men, on the other hand, were tempted to sin in relation to our work, to grumble, to complain. Older men, were told, are to be sober-minded, assessing reality properly, understanding accomplishments properly, understanding that those aren't the thing that we ought to boast in first or trust in or put our confidence in. Older men are to be dignified. They're meant to act their age. They're working appropriately according to their capacities, assessing reality, knowing what's true. And men are called to be self-controlled. Women are called to be self-controlled as well, but men are called to be self-controlled, knowing their tendencies to overwork, knowing our tendencies to make work an idol, or knowing our tendencies to abdicate our responsibility to work well and wisely. Self-control, again, also commanded to women and to young men and to, uh, and we find it in verse 11 or 12, excuse me, as well. Self-control is commanded to women, but is typically relationally driven self-control. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But godly lives that show deep respect for God's word puts off this idea of slander because of value of the truth. So, first, not slanders. This is how older women are model godly living. Not slanders. And then the second thing, not slaves to much wine. This is very similar to what Paul says to men because he leads off by saying to older men are to be sober-minded. Sober-minded, alert, avoiding that which would mess with your ability to make assessments about reality that are in line with biblical truth. Older women, though, he, he aims it a little bit more uh, uh, specifically. He says, not slaves to much wine. I'm not sure why it's more specific here. Maybe it was a cultural thing. Maybe Crete, maybe the women on Crete loved their wine. But as we, uh, as we look at and think about this, the reality is that this intersects with our culture pretty well. It intersects with uh, something that we need to, women especially, need to be aware of. Because mommy wine culture is definitely a thing in our world. I found a good housekeeping article from September of last year, and it defines this very thing. It says, there's no official medical or cultural definition of wine mom culture, but you'd recognize it if you saw it. It's things like mom who needs wine Facebook group, a wine glass that simply says mommy sippy cup, a baby's onesie that says mommy loves me more than wine, a throw pillow that says mama needs some wine, or a t-shirt that says surviving homeschool one breakdown and glass of wine at a time. 
Now that last one seems to be like a COVID reference or something, but whatever the case is, it seems pretty close to what Paul is talking about here when it says, not slaves too much wine. And here's the heart of this, because the heart of this has nothing to do with alcohol, but what your hope for refreshment at the end of a long day is. What is your hope for refreshment at the end of a long day? Is it the word of God or is it the glass of Pinot Grigio that's chilling at 8 p.m.? It's the second one that reviles the word of God. Paul uses the word much, implying again overindulgence. Because it's not a problem to have a glass of wine from time to time, but it is a problem to rely exclusively on wine to relax after being all wound up from driving kids around to six different activities and having those same kids scream at you the whole time. If that's the case, and if you are relying on this for your uh, refreshment, then that would make you a slave to it. So rather than make your hope at the end of a long day, uh, wine, make your hope at the end of a long day, God. Don't make wine your hope, hope in God. And this is given to older women because older women are meant to instruct younger women on how to do this. How is it that you will, at the end of a long day, after running kids from one thing to the next, after a long day of work where everything fell apart, how is it that, how is it that you will be refreshed? Older women, teach the younger women to hope in God. Give them life-giving truth from God's word. When you see them in the store with screaming children in tow, don't joke about the wine in the fridge. Tell them to trust God. Tell them to hope in God. This is the conduct of the life that sound doctrine produces in older women. Now, I want to make a quick distinction before we move to the next point here. The next point is the content of teaching because we're going to see Then at the end of verse 3, they are to teach what is good. Here's a a little bit of a break in between what's, what's being said here. Before the end of verse 3, to teach what is good, before that, not slanders, not slaves to much wine, what, what is being expressed is an example. How are older women meant to live in order to be examples to younger women? This, I want to tell you, does not have to do with your past. You can live as not a slanderer and not a slave to much wine right now by being founded on the word of God, by finding your foundation in sound doctrine, in the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. As we move through this passage, though, as we look at verse, the end of verse 3 through 4 and the beginning of verse 5, you're going to see some things, and you might think to yourself as an older, more mature woman, I messed up big time in some of these areas. That does not mean that you are not meant to instruct younger women in these things. That does not mean that you are uh, exempt from giving women the word of God. Just because you are unable to point to an example in your own life does not mean that the word of God does not need to work itself out through you into the community of faith. So, with that said, if you're looking at this list and you're thinking, I'm an older woman, I feel like I've matured in the Christian faith, but I made big mistakes in these areas. 
That does not disqualify you from training and teaching the next generation. They need you more. They need you. They need you to, to elevate the word of God to a place. Not to seek to justify your actions. Not to seek to say, I was put in a, or victimize yourself exclusively. In some instances, women find themselves in places where they have become the subject of abuse. The subjects of, 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 of really poor and bad circumstances. But again, the goal here is for the older generation to instruct the younger ones in God's word not in their own experience. So we have the, uh, the conduct of life and then the content of teaching. So we're going to kind of work our way through this relatively quickly. But what is said here is teach what is good, training younger women. That's what it says at the end of verse 3. What is good? Well, what's contained in verse 4 and at the beginning of verse 5. The first thing listed here is to love their husbands and children. These are the relationships that a woman's life is oriented toward. And remember that the island of Crete is this really immoral place. It's this really run-down place. And pleasure-seeking for women is often very common in the ancient world. So their children would often get disregarded along with their whole household. But the love of a wife and mother is not meant to be aimed at pleasure-seeking, is not meant to be aimed at self-fulfillment, but the love of a mother and a wife should be self-sacrificial and Christ-like. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And so, we should not do is level unrealistic expectations on your home. If you make a recipe that your husband and your kids don't like or just aren't into, just don't make it again. Let your kids have some say in decorating their rooms. It won't look Instagram ready. Who cares? This is be oriented towards your home. Be ready to lay down your life. Proverbs 31. I'm going to make a bunch of Proverbs 31 references here because it is very helpful. And it gets tossed around um, by, in a bunch of situations for women. But it's really helpful for a passage like this. And I really think that Paul even had this, this proverb, the second half of Proverbs 31, in view when he wrote some of these things. It's not about self-actualization. That's one way that women sometimes use this, use Proverbs 31, but it's not about self-actualization. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And all of her endeavors, endeavors are aimed at others. The woman in Proverbs 31 does good to her husband, not harm. Her children are clothed in scarlet. They're prepared for the future. They're prepared for the snow when it comes. She gives to the poor and the needy. And then her works at the end of the proverb praise her in the gates. It's her pouring herself out in self-sacrificial love for her household. Those are the works that praise her in the gates. So first we see love, husband, and children. Second, that's listed again is self-control. Self-control, again, oftentimes in this way, makes itself known by uh, being, uh, not be, being carried off by emotion. Women must discipline themselves to live godly lives because the world is a very different way, thinks a very different way about how you should live. And it can be really easy to buy into these cultural notions where, which cut against the grain of Scripture. So what you need to do is know the Word of God and live according to it. 
The third that's listed is purity. Again, Crete, a really immoral place. So is our culture. Being devoted to one man in every way was unlikely the case. Very uncommon on the island of Crete. And in our culture, women may be externally committed to one man in theory, but there are many ways in which our culture tempts women to wander by watching another, another movie with an unrealistic romance. Or, and, what, and then we wonder what kind of acceptable impurity have we bought into. Fourth, this one gets some, some airtime because it's controversial. Paul says, working at home. And the word here in the original language is referring to household duties. The woman is oriented towards her home. And that would be a better translation. A woman is oriented towards the relationships and her household that are contained within her household. And it's the same way that the Proverbs 31 woman is portrayed who works and her work is oriented towards her husband and her children. It's it's oriented towards her household. Working at home here in this context is meant to remind that the priority for a woman must be geared toward her husband and children. Can women work outside the home? That's not addressed here. That's not what this is talking about. There is no prohibition ever given for it. And in fact, there's good evidence that, again, in Proverbs 31, that seems to imply that work for a woman extends oftentimes outside of the home. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. But it is implied that if anything takes precedent over her household or redirects her away from loving fully her husband and children, that thing should be rejected. It's home-oriented work, not working exclusively at home. The fifth thing that is mentioned is kindness. And again, Proverbs 31 gives us the indication this time in verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The final thing that's mentioned, submission to her own husband. Older women are not meant to teach submission to every man. They're also not to teach that women should never submit to a man. They are to teach that women are submissive to their own husband, one man. Just like in our culture, women on Crete desired to distinguish themselves from their husband, to be considered a separate entity altogether. But this is not the way that Scripture lays it out for us. Rather, women's lives should reflect that they are bound to their husband, not in blind servitude, but in submission and obedience to God's Word. Older women are to teach these good things to younger women. Teach them to revere, to live in reverence to the word of God and to live godly lives founded that accords with sound doctrine. The conduct of life, the content of teaching, and finally, this is our last point, the commendation of the word. All of this is summed up, the purpose of all of this is summed up at the end of verse 5. That the word of God may not be reviled. That the word of God may not be reviled. Older men and older women are instructed how they should live according to sound doctrine 
They are to be instructing and they are to be modeling godly living for younger believers. Because if they do not, the word of God will be reviled in the culture and in the next generation. The people around us will look into the church and say, what a bunch of fools. And our children will look at us and say, what a bunch of fools. I want to make a distinction here before we move on. Many men and women in our culture revile the word of God because they hate the truth that's communicated in it. Let me say that again. Many men and women in our culture revile the word of God because they hate the truth that's contained within it. They say it's old, it's out of date, it's bigoted, it's filled with hate. That rhymed. I did not mean for that to rhyme. Reviling the word of God because they hate what it says because they know nothing of the life that's offered in it. That type of reviling is to be expected. People will hate the word of God. They will hate the gospel. They will call it stupid. Paul knew this. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is foolish, and they will revile it. They say, your God died on a cross. He shed his blood. What a stupid idea. What a dumb thing. You adhere to and think the most important thing for your life, and life itself is even found and contained within a book that has been compiled over several thousand years and is present and preserved for you. What a stupid idea. Of course the world will revile these ideas. And of course they will come after us for that. But what Paul is talking about here in, 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 in writing to Titus, when he says, so that the word of God may not be reviled, he's not talking about people hating the truth that's contained within it. He's talking about the lives of believers. And that our lives should not give reason to unbelievers to revile the word of God through hypocrisy and through vacuousness. If we claim to be Christians, our lives should be consistent with what we believe. Will they revile the truth that's put on display through Christians living consistent with what they believe? Absolutely. But when we live in a way that's different from the way that we claim to believe, then they will revile the word because of us, not because of the word. And that is to be rejected. Our lives, additionally, should not display ignorance of the belief that we claim. A few weeks ago, I shared all of those statistics in the studies from Ligonier Ministry. And so many men and women who find themselves in churches across the country week after week can't answer basic questions about the Bible. We cannot be ignorant about what we say we believe. We must be invested continually into the Word of God in order that we might give a defense of what's contained therein. Through hypocrisy and vacuousness, the Word of God will be reviled. But living lives that are outlined here in Scripture, in Titus chapter 2, living lives this way will not cause the Word of God to be reviled because of us, but because of the truth that the world hates. If you live a life that lacks self-control when the Bible commands self-control, you should not expect that the world will commend the Word of God. 
Is the expectation for you perfection? The expectation is not perfection. But the world will see false belief that is void of life transformation. And they will know if you look just like them in their worldly way. They might ask, why would I need what you have when, you, when your life and my life are the same? The new life that you claim to have just looks exactly like the old one. So I'm good. Thanks. People will revile the word of God because their minds are darkened to his truth, but they ought not revile it because of hypocrisy or vacuousness on our part. Friends, a life outlined in God's word is better than the world's way, rooted in unchanging truth, according to God's design, not subject to the winds of change or the fads or trends or philosophies of mortal people. Our lives should commend the word of God to everyone through simple obedience to it. Very briefly, in conclusion, briefing. False teaching and cultural conformity are threats to the church. And so we must, all of us, all of us, not just those who are in leadership, not just those who come here and, uh, and, and, and serve faithfully, but every single one of us in this room must join the fight seeking to prevent these things, false teaching and cultural conformity, from taking root. This happens in a few ways that we see in our text this morning. Some application, some implication. First, we must reject Lone Ranger Christianity. When the church is made up of Lone Rangers, Christians who only care about doing things their way in their personal life, Christians who hide their shortcomings hoping to save faith, Christians who refuse to commit to one another. When the church is made up of Lone Rangers Christians who fail to engage with others in the church, cultural conformity and false teaching are inevitable. They slip through the front door because everyone is focused on self and instead of denying self and laying down their lives for one another. But where believers are committed to walking as Christ walked in a way that reflects the truth of the gospel, reflects the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world laying down his life in order that we might be brought back to God in order that we might be given new life in him, in order that we might be redeemed from sin and death. When our lives reflect that and we walk as Christ walked, sacrificing self and self-interest and committing fully to one another, the church grows resilient against false teaching and cultural conformity. The New Testament doesn't have a category for a lone ranger Christian. The New Testament doesn't have a category for a Christian who just figures it out all by themselves. The community of the local church is designed to walk alongside you like is communicated here in Titus 2. Walk alongside you, train you, instruct you, give you a model of life that flows from sound doctrine. Proverbs 18.1 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Reject Lone Ranger Christianity. The second thing is we must reject age-segregated Christianity exclusively. Paul tells Titus to instruct the older believers to train the younger ones. This breaks down generational barriers. 
If the church is not engaged in these kinds of preventative measures, we can expect cancerous cultural conformity and false teaching to take hold in our midst. So if you're a young believer, you need to put yourself in the position of being trained by older, more mature believers. Men with men, women with women. Additionally, if you're an older, more mature believer, you need to be patiently pursuing younger believers to invest in. We can't just put everybody off into their own little spaces based on their age groups and stages of life. As younger believers, if you're unwilling to put yourself in the care of an older Christian, repent of your arrogance because that's what it boils down to. You think you know, you think you got it, you think you figured it out. But you need older believers. As an older believer, if you're unwilling to invest the energy and time that you have left on this earth in a younger Christian, repent of your self-centeredness. Turn from it. If you're either young or old and simply apathetic and remaining unconvinced that any of this matters for you at all, go back and read Titus 2, 1 through 5 again. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, sought the counsel of older men. He didn't like what he heard, and so he rejected it. He took the advice of younger men and shipwrecked the kingdom. This is foolishness. We know wisdom. We know wisdom, not in the fact that we just know what the words on the page say, but we know Jesus Christ, wisdom incarnate. The one who lived a life of perfection completely according to wisdom. May he instruct us and show us exactly through his word how to live well and wisely within the local church. We need each other, and even more than that, we are commanded to engage other, not segment off into generational tribes within the church. Finally. We must embrace simple obedience to God's word. There are many things that came in this text this morning that might have rubbed you the wrong way, made you feel a little uncomfortable or frustrated. The reality is that we need to submit ourselves to God and his word the way that he says it. I don't know exactly how this works for you. That's not what I'm here to tell you about. I'm not here to tell you about the ways in which wives are to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I don't know exactly what that looks like in each of your scenarios, women. Men, I do not know what it looks like exactly in all of your scenarios to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. takes these things and drives us toward simple obedience to these things that are rooted and founded in sound doctrine. Commit yourself to the gospel. Commit yourself to the truth contained in verses 11 through 14 and watch yourself flourish and desire the things in verses 2 through 5. Older, more mature believers in the church are to be instructing and modeling godly living for younger believers, taking things we see here to heart through simple obedience to God's word made possible by the new life we have in Christ. This is how Jesus builds this truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth that's contained in it. God, would you put us in a position to receive this week the truth that's contained within the foundational statements of the gospel, that we are redeemed by Jesus Christ, that he came to a world that was in sin and darkness and redeemed us, bought us back from death and sin. 
God, would our hearts be in tune now, even as we close our time this morning? God, would we desire you more than anything else? God, and would the obedience that flows from sound doctrine and, and, and the godly living that we need to engage in to show the world that the word of God is better than anything that they've concocted? God, would that be evident in each and every one of our lives as we go from this place? God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.